Father, as we consider your third commandment today, I pray that your name would be hallowed in our hearts just as my brother Steve prayed. I thank you for his God-honoring heart and his prayer. I pray that the same heart with which he prayed would be our true hearts today. We don't want our lips to be speaking your name, but our hearts to be far from you. So cause there to be reverent worship today. I lift up a number of concerns to you in our world today, some of them near to us. I pray right now for all the fires in California. I pray that you'd be pleased to put them out swiftly, that you'd protect the firemen and women who go to put out those fires. Even beyond that, God, I pray that as California sees those fires, I pray that you would use that in your providence to remind them of the great fire to come of hell. Lord, the fire we see in the forests is but an iota of the eternal lake of fire that sinners will be thrown into apart from Jesus Christ. Wake us up spiritually as a nation and as a state, Lord. I do pray for our local school district in Cambrian Park, especially for Superintendent Carrie Andrews. I pray that you would pour out your spirit upon her and cause her to make wise decisions in how she governs the schools in our neighborhood. I pray that your name would be hallowed in these schools, and I pray that um, the false ideologies of the world would not creep into the schools and lead many children astray. We know that every child in this neighborhood is being catechized, either to Christ or to an idol. So I pray that you would cause Carrie Andrews to worship you and cause the schools and the teachers in the schools to, to catechize the kids toward Christ as much as they can. Father, while it might seem silly, I also lift up Kanye West to you. As millions and millions of people follow him and his every move and his every word, Lord, I pray that you would truly save him. And if he is truly saved, I pray that you would use his words and his life to reflect you, and that in that counterculture of rap and hip-hop, and the young people who follow him on social media, cause them to hear the words, Jesus is king, and hear that for the first time, and maybe repent and believe this very day. Sway that entire culture of godlessness in the rap industry toward Christ, as, I, as you can, Lord. I also lift up Bay Gospel Church to you, to you today. Our sister church just down the block. Pray for Daniel Um and his preaching today. And I pray that you would raise up many mighty young men in that, in that church to be disciplers of that community. I pray that you pour out your blessing and your word be proclaimed. Also for Cambrian Park Baptist Church, God, protect us from spiritual warfare and cause your spirit to go out and to accomplish your purpose as we know it will. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 What's in a name? Arguably Shakespeare's most famous line. What did Juliet say? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Here, Juliet is telling Romeo that his last name is artificial and meaningless. It's just a convention made up. It doesn't matter what our last names are if you're a Montague and I'm a Capulet. Let's throw off our names. We can love each other because our feelings say so. You can call this rose any name you want. That sounds romantic, doesn't it? But do you remember how the play ends? Both dead because of this fatal error of thinking that they can get away by following their selfish hearts over their names. We know that a person's name is anything but artificial and meaningless. Has someone ever gossiped about your name and spread your reputation in a false and bad way? How did that make you feel? We don't want our names to be gossiped or mocked, do we? We want our names to be honored. honored. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. 
So we know that names have meaning and are impactful and are not artificial or meaningless. Now, if we who are dust, if we who are vapor, who are here one day and gone the next, care about our names being revered, how much more so should this morning in God's church we seek to revere and lift up God's holy and eternal name? Amen? As we've been working through the Ten Commandments the past two weeks, we first looked at worship. The first commandment was who we worship. That we should not worship any other gods. Last week, Kirk preached that it was very important that we are concerned with the proper means of worship, that we should not make any graven images or try to worship Christ in a way that he has not prescribed. And today, on the third commandment, we'll continue the theme of worshiping God, but we want to have a special focus on the attitude of how we worship in our hearts and how we revere God's holy name. Look with me at chapter 20, verse 7. The third commandment states, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Because God's name isn't artificial or meaningless, but because it represents himself, you, saints, must not take it in vain, or you will be guilty. Three questions that we must ask of this third commandment. And the three points of the sermon. First, what is the significance of God's name? Second, how do we take it in vain? And lastly, how can we know if right now we stand before God guilty or guiltless? So, starting off, what is the significance of God's name? We notice right away from this commandment that it made it on this list and its punishment was so severe that we should pay attention. We should stop whatever we're doing and we should say, help me pay attention to this commandment. Israel would have understood the significance of this commandment, both because they put a lot of stock in the family's name. They would have remembered back to Abraham's name and their forefathers and the family name and that communal culture would have been vital to them. Sometimes that falls flat on us, being individualistic Americans. They also would have known that this was serious because recently they remembered why God judged Egypt and Pharaoh and his soldiers because they neglected to revere God's holy name and to bow down before Yahweh, the one true living God. Because they worshipped a pantheon of other gods, they, God drowned them and he destroyed them and the shrieks of the dead Egyptians were probably still ringing in the ears of the Israelites. So they were to stop and know that this was important and know that just like the Egyptians, if they revered any other god, that their fate would be the same. So they got it. Remember back in Exodus 3, 13 through 14. I hope we get this too, saints. Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name, Yahweh, or Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, as, as many of your English translations say, is God's covenant name. Utilizing the first person verb in Hebrew, to be, often translated I am, revealing to us a few things. One, his self-existence, also his self-sufficiency. 
In the, in the ancient Near Eastern context, with thousands of competing and flawed gods, the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, was absolutely unique. And he proved it, too, by destroying the supposedly most powerful gods of the Egyptians. He proved to everyone that he indeed is self, self-existent and self-sufficient and more powerful than all the other false gods. He simply is. Can you wrap your head around that? If that doesn't blow your mind, he simply is. Get some coffee, you aren't awake. His self-existence means that he is not from anything else or a combination of parts. He simply is and was and will be. Gwen, my oldest daughter, reserves her existential questions for me to when I want to put her to bed. She's trying to stall and she says, who made God? Where does he come from? Everything in this universe comes from God. The Milky Way your nose, exists because God exists. This is so simple and fundamental, but I don't think we wrap our heads around that that pure fact of reality that we are in. The great I am is self-sufficient, meaning also that he needs no praise from you. Also, that when sinners mock him, he is not affected at all. God's name needs no support And because his name is before all others, he is never mocked, as Paul says in Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked. So don't sweat when you hear all the crazy politics happening. Don't sweat when your atheist neighbor is cursing God. Pray for them. Pray that his name would be hallowed, but know that his name needs no help from us. But I submit to you why God's name is so significant in the third commandment isn't just because it describes his character but because it literally represents God himself. Consider Proverbs 18.10. Your name is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And likewise, in the New Testament, as we heard read, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.9, Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We know from these verses, God's name is not merely a label or a sign. It represents God himself. In Proverbs 18, when we run to take shelter underneath God's name, or in Matthew 6, when we hallow his name, or here in Exodus 20, if we take his name in vain, what we're doing to his name is literally things that we are doing to God himself. His name is the perfect representation of who he is. God's name is as much God himself as if someone were gossiping about your name, they are literally gossiping about you. You see that logically? That as much as God's name represents and is himself, is the same if if you were to say someone's gossiping about my name, they are gossiping about you and your personhood, your essence. So since this is true, we must consider how we relate to God's self-existent, glorious name. Is his name precious and awesome to you? How should this look for us? Well, I want to give you one illustration for how this might look for us. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
We have a lot of reverence for the name of Aslan, the great lion who represents Christ. Listen to this excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver had spoken his name, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Does God's name evoke this kind of awe in you? When you call on his name, how often do you consider that you are literally calling upon God himself and not an empty label? When you sang about Jesus just a moment ago, were you singing to an, an overhead projector? Were you singing to bits and bites on the screen? Or were you singing to the lover of your soul as if he were standing in this room with us? Now, not only are we to relate to his name properly, but saints, we are called to represent his name too. Do your goals and priorities show that you aren't living for your name and your greatness, but for God's name? Confessing your sins is really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Because when you confess your sins to one another, what you're saying is, I'm willing to admit my sin because it's not about my name or reputation that matters. It's about the name of God. So confessing this, your sins is one way you can practically prove that you care infinitely more about God's name than your own name and reputation. So now that we've considered the significance of God's name, the question all of us have to honestly ask ourselves is, how, if it's so glorious and so majestic, how could any one of us ever take it in vain? Doesn't that seem absurd that any one of us would take this majestic name in vain? We do, though, don't we? Once we understand what God's name is, and what we understand the phrase taking something in vain is, then we will both be able to understand the broad and the narrow ways that we break the third commandment. The Hebrew word here for to take God's name in vain, the word take is the word nasah. Can you say nasah? Nasah. That can mean to lift up, carry, or take. When I was taking Hebrew class, the way I remember that was not nasah, but at NASA, they say lift off. So in, when you're in the control room in NASA, in, in NASA, you say lift off. So to lift up, to carry, to take with you, the Hebrew word nasah is a way you can remember to take his name. So you know what vain means, so I don't need to describe vain to you. Vain means empty, void, or even false. So notice that the third commandment doesn't say, don't misspeak the name of God. But it says, don't take or lift up or carry the name of God in vain. It's much more broad than just speaking, friends. So in layman's terms, you could reword the third commandment this way. Do not carry God's name in your heart, mind, and actions 
in a way that misrepresents him and his name as either worthless or false. So it's much more than speaking. Don't carry his name with you in a way that represents him as worthless or false. Now, this is no new sin, is it, for us? Back in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, the serpent misrepresented God's name by calling God's word into question and calling it false. He told Eve, did he really say? And Adam and Eve followed suit, taking God's name in vain as they looked at the fruit and they wanted to be like God, knowing good from evil. They were not content with bearing God's name. They wanted a name for themselves. And so even back to the first sin, the sin that's propagated throughout all of humanity, even till today, is this breaking of the third commandment, that we do not bear his name properly. God calls his people, moving forward to Israel, and he calls Christians today to bear his name You can imagine why this commandment is so serious because God is jealous for his name to be holy and to be known amongst the nations. For Israel, God heard their cry and their plea and he shattered the gods of Egypt so that his name would be holy and it would be declared with a blowhorn throughout the world. God was jealous for his name. And so you can see why the punishment is so severe in the third commandment. Because he wanted Moses and the Israelites to get that his name was to be hallowed. That his people literally represented him on earth. So too with us, friends. 1 Peter 4.16 Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In what name? Christian. Christian means what? Little Christ. To be a Christian, like an Israelite, means everything you do now represents Christ's name. Therefore, in a broad sense, any sin you commit, in a broad sense, any sin you commit is breaking the third commandment. Any sin is a violation of the third commandment. Because in that moment, what you're saying is, for example, with with coveting, What you're saying is that as a bearer of Christ's name, I am not content with your gifts, God. I want something else that you have not given me. So you are misrepresenting God. You are saying that God is worthless and he is empty and he's not good on his promise whenever you covet. It is in a broad sense breaking the third commandment. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? But we also have to recognize that more than just in a broad way, in a narrow way, there are specific names that, ways that we take his name in vain too. Although taking God's name is more than speaking it improperly, it is certainly not less than that. And because a name is something verbally expressed, we are right to focus the third commandment, especially on our speech. Third commandment violations, don't worry, I won't give you the whole Westminster Larger Catechism, it's a long list Third commandment violations can include swearing, wrong oath-taking, heartless praying, minced oaths, cursing, coarse talk, religious humor, flippancy, hypocrisy, blasphemy, heresy, proof-texting, perjury, and false prophecy. And this is the short list. 
We don't have time to go through each of these by example, but I'll put them into two big categories for you. First, I'll categorize a lot of those in improper speech, saying the wrong things. And the second category is, I'll put the label hypocrisy, saying the right things, but having our lives lived out in such a way that those words were effectively empty. Improper speech and hypocrisy. Why does this matter? Why does God care so much about our speech? Well, we're told in Luke 6.45 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just like all the other commandments, the third commandment is especially concerned with the heart. So if you say, oh, I said that and I didn't mean it, well, Jesus says otherwise. He says it was out of the abundance or the overflow of your heart that your mouth just spoke. Yes, we can misspeak accidentally, but more often than not, what we say is a reflection of our heart. Jesus says so. Some examples of this improper speech. One that came to mind that we are guilty of, and I know I'm guilty of, is when we pray in Jesus' name mindlessly, adding it to the end of our prayers in an empty way. Or when we pray and use one of God's name in vain repetition in our prayers. For example, Father, you know Father, we just Father, grant us grace Father, and Father, just all the peace in the world, Father, please give it to us. How was I using the name of Father there? Vain repetition. Is that how you talk to your dad? It's not. Now, is it always sin when someone's learning to pray? No, if their heart is right and they're just learning, then we show a measure of grace. But oftentimes, more often than not, when we are praying in that way, when we've been trained that way, we are taking the name Father, the precious, majestic name of the Father, and we are saying by its use that it is empty and meaningless. Most clearly, a violation in speech is committing blasphemy. Sadly, we, we can't really go a day without hearing the, the phrase, oh my, and then end it with the phrase with his name. Also, I think even more convicting is when we, when we engage in what's called minced oaths. When we replace his name with shortcuts like gosh, gee, or golly. Those are called minced oaths, and they were invented back in Victorian England when, bra- when blasphemy was breaking the law. While it is possible for someone out of ignorance to say, gee whiz, while that's possible for them not to sin, nine times out of ten, when we use a shortened variant of God's name out of frustration or flippancy, and the heart is, the heart is not pure, is it? So let's train ourselves to even cut these minced oaths out of our vocabulary knowing that God isn't fooled by our abbreviations. So in your house, try to train your children to refrain from saying, oh my gosh. Because what, even though it's, it's different, it's close enough that God isn't fooled by that. And we, when we are frustrated with something, we don't want that to come from our lips. We want a prayer of help to come from our lips. Amen? Since our mouths and hearts are the Lord's, beyond even using his name or abbreviation of his name, Any swearing, coarse jokes, or off-colored humor is taking the mouth that God created for his purposes and it's perverting it. It's dragging it through the mud. Christ has called us to the standard of speech in Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. 1 Peter 4, 11. Whoever speaks 
speak as one who is speaking the oracles of God. We don't use the word oracle very often. Speaking the words of God. So as Christians, whether you knew it or not, when you were baptized, when you signed up to be a Christian, you were saying, my mouth is now God's mouth and I am his mouthpiece. Therefore, we would do well to bring everything we say underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we? I want to briefly touch on this idea of Ephesians 4.29, speech that fits the occasion, because I think this is something that is pervasive in our church and in our culture. Does the third commandment denounce all humor and enjoyment? By no means. God invented humor and uses it throughout scripture, doesn't he? Remember Proverbs 10.23, the sluggard who is so lazy that he puts his hand in the dish and he can't even bring it back up to his mouth? If you don't think that's funny, then check your pulse. That God puts humor all throughout scripture. So it's not wrong to use humor. God does it himself to make a point. But be aware that there are certainly times when humor does not fit the occasion. Or when we should, rather than being humorous, we should be sprinkling the salt of spiritual truth into a conversation rather than discussing frivolous things that don't matter eternally. So it might not be wrong to talk about or ask about a sports team, job, or children. But if that's all you talk about, friends, especially on the Lord's Day when the church is gathered, then it reveals that your heart is not honoring God's name because you're willingly choosing to talk not about him, but about other things in life. Now, can we talk about sports, jobs, and children? Yes, but let's do so talking about how he is in every arena in life, how God impacts the way you work, how God impacts the way you raise your children. So we don't want to be legalistic about this, but we need to check our hearts to say, am I predisposed to steer conversations toward godly things? Spurgeon says in lectures to my students, listen, this is a longer quote, but I think it should pierce all our hearts. The silliest chit-chat of the town and the vainest nonsense of the frivolous world demand a hearing and get it. And shall not Christ be heard? Shall his message of love remain untold for fear we should be charged with intrusion? Is religion to be tabooed, the best and noblest of all themes forbidden? We cannot consent to be gagged. There is no reason why we should be. We will go to no place where we cannot take our master with us. While others may take liberty to sin, we shall not renounce our liberty to rebuke and warn them. Wisely used, our common conversation may be a potent means for good. So again, God doesn't want to be forced artificially into your conversations but he wants your hearts. And out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. So don't try to get all churchy on me at lunch today and start artificially talking about God. God wants your heart. And if he, if he has your heart, not only in salvation, but if, if you're meditating on, meditating on him throughout the week, my hope and prayer is that, that will, you will bleed the Bible, that you will sweat the Bible, that, that your words will come out and they'll be full of grace. Possibly worse, if you thought that was bad and if you're convicted, possibly worse than speaking sinfully, we take God's name in vain when we speak the right words but we don't live them. 
what makes hypocrisy worse than blasphemy is that it has an added layer of deception to it. That when we say words that sound really good, but in fact are deceptive and meaningless, that we are engaging in two sins at that point, and an even more grave sin than we are when we simply outright blaspheme God's name. Consider 1 Corinthians 13.1, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is a great and sneaky sin for our church, because we know the lingo, don't we? Guard your heart with all diligence, and friends, be slow to speak. While we are not always able to work through this in our heads, we want to train our spiritual muscles and our reflexes to, before we say something, to ask, will this honor God? Will this represent him? And will this build up the person I'm speaking to? Will this help them? Will this be full of grace and salt before them? Am I going to Or am I going to say something? Am I going to make a promise to the person in front of me that I haven't counted the cost first, whether I can follow up on that promise or not? We can fight against this, brothers and sisters. The best way to fight against this is by true prayer and service. Because if you are truly in prayer throughout the week, then you are connecting and communing with the Father. And you are protecting yourself from speaking vain things to people throughout the week. If you're If you know how to be with God in the private closet, then you're prepared to be in public with him. Also, if you are active in service using the spiritual gift God has given you in the church, then you will be less likely to be a hypocrite in promising that you'll serve the church and people in so many ways when you have no means or capacity to do so. So start praying and start serving, and you will protect your heart much more from this type of hypocrisy. I want to give you an illustration that really brings to light the severity of this. On December 24th, 1696, in Scotland, a jury found Thomas Aikenhead guilty of cursing and railing against God, denying the incarnation of the Trinity, and scoffing at the scriptures. You know, want to know what his sentence was? Death by hanging. This college student who was blaspheming God in Scotland, in 1696, was tried and found guilty and was hung. Now, I'm not advocating that that be put in place tomorrow in our court system, but I bring that to your attention for you to see how crazy our culture is and how far we've come from the biblical standard. That there were other cultures that saw that as right and good and normal. Not trying to defend that biblically, there was Study Thomas Aikenhead if you want more context of why that happened, but I want you to be shocked and appalled by the blasphemy and how okay it is throughout our nation. If you understand the third commandment properly, you will agree with me that we are all guilty of breaking it. Not once, not twice. How many do you think? Thousands of times. Thousands of times. The question we should all be asking right now is not, whether we are guilty or not, but whether you will be held guilty or guiltless. It might sound like a minor distinction, but it means all the difference. The distinction is not whether we are guilty or not, we're all guilty, but is God right now and on judgment day, will he hold you guilty or guiltless? This leads us to our final point. Look at verse 7 again with me in Exodus 20. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless 
who takes his name in vain. While there may be many noble reasons not to break the third commandment, the reason in God's providence that he chose to write down on the tablets of stone, the reason, the primary reason he gave was to warn us that we would not be held guiltless if we do so. For the Israelites, like I said, they would have had the fresh memory of God destroying the Egyptians before them. And they would have known that if they were going to pledge allegiance with Pharaoh in Egypt, that their fate would be the same. That they would hear their shrieking and their crying and their damnation. So the Israelites, when they heard this, God warned them rightly and they would have, they would have received that warning. Just as it was right for God to destroy all those that opposed him in Egypt, he is right to oppose anyone in Israel or the church today who opposes him by taking his perfect, majestic, self-sufficient, holy name that's not just an empty label, but it represents God himself. He is right for anyone who takes that name and perverts it and uses it in a way that says it's false and it's empty. He is right to say that they will not be held guiltless. This is like biting the hand that feeds you. The reason you exist is because of God's self-existence. And so when you drag God's self-existent name through the mud, you're biting the hand that feeds you. You're saying the thing that's keeping me alive right now is false and worthless. If you're a Christian, the, the God who's delivered me from my sin and done the best thing in the world for me is garbage. It's trash. That's what we do. And that's why it's so serious for God. Ethicist David Jones says, such talk communicates false information about God's being and effectively desensitizes both the speaker and the hearer to God's holiness. Just the same way that violent movies or video games might desensitize young people for the real thing, when we blaspheme or when we break the third commandment, we're desensitizing ourselves and our hearers to that which is most pure. God holds those as guilty who take his name in vain. If he doesn't, then what he's doing is he agrees with the empty and worthless value of his name. Is that what God does? Does he agree with the empty and worthless value of his name? He doesn't. The punishment for this guilt, it says you won't, they won't be held guiltless. It can either be temporal and immediate, just as it was for Herod Agrippa in Acts 12, 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give glory, God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the guilt will most certainly be doled out. Whether it's immediate and temporal or not, it will most certainly be doled out on judgment day. Matthew 7.21 reminds us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who call on God's name but don't obey his word are breaking the third commandment. Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, and in their hearts they'll know that that's empty and meaningless, but they have fooled everyone around them thinking it's meaningful and valuable. None of us want this fate, but unfortunately what I see in our culture is two common responses to the third commandment. Either I feel really bad and therefore, I shouldn't, even try, I shouldn't even try to obey God. His standards are too high. Or, the other false response, I'm at least not as bad as other people I know who do a lot worse things. I'm sure God is willing to put up with me. Both of these responses are wrong 
because they focus on you and tell a lie about God. As guilty commandment breakers, how can we be held guiltless without violating God's word or his justice? How can God hold us guiltless if he's promised to not hold us guiltless even though we've broken his commandments? How can God do this and not violate his own justice? Only if the one who is truly guiltless, never taking God's name in vain, is held guilty in our place. What kind of eternal, majestic God would do this? Willing to die in the place of sinners like us? His name is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Amen? Amen. 2,000 years ago, the self-existent God entered into his existence and lived a fully human life, only bearing the name of God perfectly. With his speech and acts, he perfectly represented God, even so that when Philip asked Jesus in John 14, 8, we want to see the Father, Jesus responded, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But instead of receiving the kingly honor he was due, he was sentenced to die the most shameful death on a cross in a garbage heap outside of town. And what false charge did they use to bring against the Lord of glory? Blasphemy. What charge? They said, you're a violator of the third commandment, Jesus. Blasphemy. Breaking this third commandment, saying, you call yourself the son of God, we do not believe you. Jesus, in his dying breath, paid for all the sins of his elect. Blasphemers like me and you, after taking the punishment for our guilt, he lifted up God's name with the most reverence, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because of this perfect sacrifice, we now can repent of our sin and call upon the name of the Lord. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The good news is that God takes blasphemers like us, and even though we are guilty in practice, he can hold us guiltless because he took his perfect son and he held him guilty on the cross for us. Because of his, this substitutionary atonement, in Jesus' death and victorious resurrection, he can hold you guiltless this morning. Isn't that a wonderful reality? If you aren't a Christian or believe that you might be a false convert and are currently guilty of taking God's name in vain, then I want to call you this hour to turn from your sin toward faith in Jesus Christ's name. If you do, he will not turn you away but he will give you a new heart and a desire to honor God's name. This stuff might sound like garbledygook to you, but when God gives you a new heart, if you turn to him today, you will want to honor his name in all you do. It will be precious to you, and you'll see all the ways you've spent your life building up your own kingdom and name and how it's built on a house of cards. Turn today and trust in Jesus, and God will save you, and he will give you not only reverence for his name, but he'll, he'll give you a new name too. Amazing news of the gospel. If you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, praise God afresh today that while you have broken the third commandment 
thousands of times and why you probably still will break it more in your life that you don't have to stand upon your own righteousness, but you can be held guiltless because the awesome king took your awful death from you. Examine your heart and resolve to kill all the ways that you are currently taking the Lord's name in vain. Your ability to worship, not just here in the church, but outside these four walls, your ability to worship and your witness, your ability for God to use you to save others is at stake. Everything's at stake. Mortify all of the vain ways that you take God's name into the world. Our job is not only to, take, to not take his name in vain, but to tell everyone about the greatness of Jesus' name and let our lives represent the truth about God. So church, we must ask again, as we did at the beginning, what's in a name? Sorry, Juliet. God's self-existence, majestic character, and power of eternal life to all those who repent and believe are what is in a name. Confess it with your lips this morning. Sing it. Talk about it. Pray to him. May your name be his. May you fly the banner Christian before you fly anything else. I want to close this morning by beautiful lyrics from a blasphemer, John Newton, a former slave trader known as a captain of a ship, known as a sailor who invented cursing. This John Newton wrote these words. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Dear name, the rock on which we build, our shield and hiding place, our never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Let's pray. Oh God, we have no other response but to fall on our faces, prostrate in repentance and in prayer that you would count us guiltless, God. Help us to see how we have dragged your name through the mud and with our actions and our hypocrisy and our minced oaths, how we have communicated not only in our own hearts and des but desensitized those around us to your majestic name. I pray that Cambrian Park Baptist Church would recapture and be ever increasing in the way we honor and revere your name. May you, God, who are not mocked, be made great this morning. May you hallow your name on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.